I just said, let me throw some bullshit, see if it lands. Welcome to the Forbidden Technique Podcast on the Fight Side Podcast Network with myself, your host, Silas Martin, my co-host, as always, Christian Reynolds. We're just coming off of UFC 291. Pretty spectacular card. Uh, the fights, if not all uh, that divisionally relevant, everything was pretty fantastic and exciting. And still some uh, very important results. We've also got a pretty solid uh, UFC Fight Night card coming up with uh, Corey Sandhagen taking on Rob Font. Somewhat short notice in the main event. It should be a good fight nonetheless. We'll get into that later. But first, we're just going to get straight on into UFC 291. Uh, main event, uh, Justin Gaethje KOs Dustin Poirier by head kick early in the second round. Uh, after a first round that was uh, reasonably competitive and um, definitely showed how the stylistic dynamic had somewhat shifted over time, over the time since they had last fought. Uh, I think I gave Dustin Poirier the first round, but he was uh, certainly having some difficulty tracking Justin Gaethje down. Um, I think a lot of what we talked about in terms of Justin Gaethje uh, having a more back foot counter punching oriented approach these days, even if it isn't the deepest, and he's still a guy who just gets uh, dragged into insane wars all the time. Um, it was an approach that was probably going to favor him more against uh, Dustin Poirier than his last one, where um, he was constantly pressuring and just. Um, wading into the pocket and just uh, giving just uh, Dustin Poirier a ton of uh, counter-punching opportunities. Sure. Uh, I think the head kick was pretty much just like the kicking equivalent of how Connor knocked out Dustin. Dustin's head movement's kind of programmable and the way that his guard sits on his head whenever he's like being forced to react defensively, it's just pretty rote. He has good reactions, but you know, they're, they're pretty reliable. If you just keep getting him to lean back and like put his high guard up, eventually you can hit around the guard. Just the way that he structures his his defense with his hands and his upper body movement, it's going to make you head kickable, even though it might save you from a lot of boxing attacks. Uh, you know, Gaethje just did like the shittiest version possible of the Leon Usman setup, and it worked pretty much the first time he tried it. I know he threw a kick earlier in the fight, but I don't think it was the same exact thing. Uh, he just kind of established his threat on the back foot of stepping in with the right, right hand or throwing a counter right hand, and then Dustin just slipped too aggressively and also 
Uh, I think he probably thought that his elbow was more flared out than it was, but the way that he keeps his elbow so tight to his chest whenever he's trying to do that move, it helps you against boxing counters because the, the trajectory range will kind of make their bicep stop on you. But if you're doing that against head kicks, the kick's just going to, one, blow through your guard, and two, hook around and hit you in the back of the head like it did. So it, it's just a, like a tactical deficiency in his head movement to where head kicks can kind of fuck him up. He just hasn't really fought anyone that's a orthodox fighter who's going to rip a head kick. Yeah, uh, certainly was a good read on the part of Justin Gaethje, whether or not it was uh, something he worked on, it was something he was trying throughout the fight. Um, you know, even though he was, uh, I think, having more success drawing Dustin Poirier forward, he still like uh, got hurt with a clean left hand in the first round and was having a lot of difficulty landing clean punches to Dustin Poirier's head. Dustin Poirier has very good defense, but it's very a boxing specialized defense. It's always read as kind of kickable. Um, so just a a good read just to uh, fire a longer power shot that was uh, able to punish D- Dustin Poirier as he was fading back out of uh, boxing exchanges. Wasn't uh, the prettiest head kick in the world. I think Justin Gaethje just doesn't have like crazy flexible hips and knees to throw a super pretty head kick but uh, just landed clean as, as hell and he's clearly just a, a dense man if he hits you it's going to hurt I think what we've kind of seen largely out of this fight is it's a little bit of a little bit of an inverse of what you think of most MMA matchups being is that it's actually kind of a fight where the guy who has to come forward loses and so weirdly like Justin Gaethje just making it clear that he was going to have a more uh, reserved back foot performance and letting Dustin Poirier respond to that still meant that Justin Gaethje kind of, he was the one who had the initiative about the kind of fight that they were having, even if he wasn't, even if he was the one who was moving backwards. Gaethje's actual defense when he's in range, not great, but he does put himself in good positions with his feet. In the first fight, uh, the fact that Justin Gaethje was constantly pressuring while also being so hittable meant that Dustin Poirier was able to just constantly keep his feet set and just be able to pick Gaethje off on the way in repeatedly. Um, He uh, sometimes has to just catch up with his own punches when he's really forced to come forward. And uh, things like his jab just uh, aren't as consistent when forced into that kind of fight. And uh, he is just. will put himself out of position in, in exchanges a lot more. Um, you know, there's always an extent of he was kind of doing fine and probably won the first round and then kind of just got caught. You know, even Justin Gage, he said himself uh, after the fight, he was like, yeah, I threw a few times in the fight. That one just happened to wrap around. Call it luck if you want. Uh, I'm down with it. I'm not saying it's any kind of fluke or anything. I'm just, you know, there's an element like of, of that to literally any knockout pretty much. I don't think the fight was a fluke by any means. It, to me, it struck more. It, it just seemed more like Andrade versus Rose Namunez one, where the fighter who loses the first part of the fight just gets a knockout the second that they start winning, pretty much. Because uh, Dustin was he was beating Gaethje up in in spots in the first round. He was still getting uh, a lot of pushback, and it was it was hard for him to get his game going. But 
it seemed like Justin was fighting a fight that would eventually lead to a victory for him. And then pretty much the second that the the fight started swinging his direction, he just knocks him out with the head kick. But I thought Justin's game plan was just more poised to, to get a victory than Dustin's. I think Dustin's was a little, like... I think he fought in a very reactive way. Yeah, because he was boxing a lot better in the first fight. And it wasn't just being on the back foot. He was jabbing more actively. Well, I, I think part of that is the fact that when people are coming at him, he is, he's just able to stay in his stance while he's jabbing. Yeah, it also seems to me that Dustin is wanting to be just a southpaw instead of a switch hitter in in his more recent fights, which I don't think is a good idea. I don't think it really suits his game. Uh, against Connery, barely switched against Charles. Didn't really get too many opportunities to because he prefers to, to just, like shift on the, the front foot. But just fighting out of orthodox is... Like good enough. He doesn't have to be shifting into everything. In this fight in particular, I think... I feel like he's always been basically a southpaw who shifts in combination, but doesn't really fight from orthodox for extended periods most of the time. Even though I think he's actually right-handed. He is. You know, he loves to, like, jab-jab and then shifting right-hand and step through into orthodox as he throws it. It's a staple of his game for a reason. And he, I think the reason he's gotten away from it is because of kind of like an MMA brained idea of an outfighter or like a, a tactical genius where it's just, Oh, I'll just exclusively fight from one stance and just be really hard to hit and land crisp counters because he's had success with it. But as he's tried to develop himself more to a counter puncher, it seems like he's lost a lot of what got him to the dance. Yeah, I think this is going to be a thing we're seeing with Dustin Poirier getting up there in terms of fight years and experience. And he's, you know, he's what in his mid thirties now. I don't think he's past it by any stretch, but uh, he's been in the UFC for a really fucking long time and has been in uh, many, many life-altering wars. Like one of which is enough to just like instantly end the careers of like other people that we've seen in the past. Um, we talked about his improvements as a counterpuncher being just a, a thing that is somewhat hard to like quantify and is really just, you see the wealth of experience, you know, high level competition and years of sparring and with, with good training partners and j just the feel that you develop for that style of fighting. But, um, I think that that you get those improvements for as long as you still have like the physical attributes to actually utilize them and you still have like the durability to be in these kind of fights and the reactions to see things coming and that confidence to be able to still pull the trigger in exchanges and this is you know I've been comparing Dustin Poirier to Robbie Lawler this is what we saw with Robbie Lawler as he started to age out he didn't start just getting fucking sparked all the time and just looking like he couldn't even compete he just he just started throwing a lot less and became way more defensive and just let people dictate fights more and just couldn't pull the trigger as much and I didn't think Dustin Poirier looked like that yet but you know he he didn't go fucking hog wild the way I expect Dustin Poirier to when he hurt someone when he stung Gaethje in the first round yeah, he, it, he I think just willingness to do things that he's not particularly great at was uh, an important aspect of Dustin's game that it seems like he's kind of tried to phase out. 
Like, if you look at the first Justin fight, the way that he was approaching, uh, like, pushing Gaethje back once he got Justin kind of stunned behind his high guard, he would tap, like, four of the most garbage jabs you'll see and then throw, like, three or four punches off of it that don't look nice, really, but they're hard because he's a hard hitter, and they're fine, you know? Like, he, he's a good boxer, generally. He, he can throw any shot shittily, uh, but it's shitty for him relative to other people, you know? Like, if other people tried that exact approach against Gaethje at that point in time, they would have just gotten murdered because the shots would have nothing on him. But he can throw kind of janky, like, punches to the body, even though it's not really part of his game, and still hurt someone. Yeah, an important part of Dustin Poirier's development as a fighter was realizing that he had fucking rocks in his gloves and he just needed to touch people. Yeah, I think uh, maybe the last fight we saw of his where he was willing to do something he's not particularly good at to win was the Connor fight. Uh, or the second and third Connor fight, where just like, oh, I'll not- wrestle. I'm not. I'm not a wrestler, but I'll, I'll I'll wrestle Conor McGregor in the first round. Like, why not? Yeah, like I'll kick him a little bit. You know, Dustin's always thrown kicks, but he was like, oh, I'll actually use it as part of my game plan, or oh, I'll, I'll try and punch him a little bit, and and then like shoot a takedown. Just doing things that he's not good at, but he'll try. You know, I I think the Charles fight maybe kind of killed some of that. Uh, enthusiasm for that, and then the Chandler fight—he wasn't even allowed to because Chandler just put a pace on him so quickly that he, he just submit Michael Chandler. <laughs> well, yeah, but I think he's always really had that ability. I, I don't think that was anything new. I think he just didn't fight anyone that he really had the opportunity to do that against up until Chandler. Because you know Dan Hooker, he's hard to, to submit, and he get, doesn't get tired as quickly. I mean, he gets tired, but you know the way that he falls off when he's tired is so different than the way Chandler falls off when he's tired. I think most fighters in the UFC could submit Chandler when he's that tired. I, know, I feel like at that point, Dustin Poirier was like specifically working on his jiu-jitsu because he got rear naked choked twice in title fight. Oh, that's probably it. I mean, I'm sure that he... After the, after the fight, he that, literally said, Who ain't got jiu-jitsu? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that certainly that was part of it. I think just... I think he's always had that level of jiu-jitsu, though. Like, I don't think that was him doing something he's bad at in order to win or like pull out a victory. I, th- I think that was just something he's always kind of had in his back pocket that he never really gets to utilize, that he maybe wanted to prove a point with. Uh, I, I, I just d- didn't like how he was unwilling to just tap the jab at Gaethje on the front foot the way that he was trying to in their first fight. Because he's not good at it, in, in particular, but he's a generally decent enough fighter where he can do things he's not good at well. Or at least serviceably, and he wasn't willing to try out new things game planning wise. He just kind of stuck to his fundamentals, which is not uh, Gage is not the person you want to stick your fundamentals against. Sometimes you need to just go like bang him in the head with some shit. Again, he was he was going for the body kicks. Why not just make that a bigger part of it and just make Justin Gaethje the one to uh, have to initiate the exchanges? Yeah, it's not like Justin's really dangerous on top for a guy like Dustin. I don't think Dustin's going to get like ruined by King on top or anything. So I don't know why he wasn't just going for really shitty takedowns that he has no intention of actually getting him down with. And then just elbow him from guard, let Gaethje stand him back up. Just kind of do that to show him shit. Probably because he just like- knows how fucking like how explosive of a scrambler Justin Gaethje is in the first layer. And it's just not even worth it. You're just going to get, tired going for that approach for him if you're not an actually elite positional grappler well i think he's 
like comfortably a lot better when he's tired than Gaethje is. I, I think they're both very good tired, but I think Dustin's just a, a little bit better at it, or at least he, he holds up uh, the game that he always wants to be doing when he's really tired. He at least looks more composed. Like Justin Gaethje yeah. looks hilarious fighting when he's tired, even when it's highly effective. Yeah, and like I think that how good of a scrambler he is is why he should be going for just like kind of just pull guard on him basically. Just go at Justin, you know, just show a takedown. If you get sprawled on real hard and, and like, pancaked, whatever, just get up. Like, it's not like you're going to get subbed by Justin Gaethje. Like, just, just kind of do whatever you're going to do to him with the grappling. Even if it doesn't work, it's still going to get him to react to it. You know, three or four times that you keep dropping to your knees and, and kind of pull guard on him, he's eventually just going to over-sprawl on one of them, then you rip him with an uppercut. Or just get into the body better. You know, like, there's so many things that he did idea-wise in the first fight against Justin that he just didn't really pull out in this one, partially because he didn't get the time to, but also I think he was biding his time too much. Like The the pace of the first round was good, but it wasn't the pace that you should be putting on Justin Gaethje. Because Justin, he's really good on the back foot. He is not infallible on the back foot. You can push him back really easily. He gets put uh, in like a uh, almost like like Edson Barboza esque series of just running backwards if you really put the pace on him, particularly with grappling. But I'm not sure that it's being an insane grappler that does it. I think it's just showing your grappling repeatedly and it being an actual threat to him. I think that's his initial reaction is to give space whenever someone wants to shoot a takedown on him. So who you want to see Justin Gaethje fight? I guess Makashev. I don't know. Like it seems like that was all this fight was is just whoever wins gets to fight for the belt again because they love giving those two title shots. Yeah, or I guess it's I guess it's winner of uh Mac Charles two. Yeah, it, well if that fight ends up happening. It's booked, isn't it? They'll they'll pro- they'll, pro- they'll probably put Justin Gaethje in as a uh, backup, I would imagine. Yeah, have a have Gaethje fight like oh Gamrot? He can fight someone that's a bit beneath him just for the sake of doing it, you know? Yeah, I guess if he has to have uh, another fight, because they're going to try and put him in a title shot, um, whatever happens. But if he has to take another fight before then, I guess it's like Benny. Yeah, because I'm never going to be upset at Dustin and Justin being booked, but when it comes to like the health of the division, it was a terrible fight to make because they are both people that we need to see, people like Gamrot, Sarukian, uh, like re- really, all of the the lightweights that haven't cracked into the fighting Islam Charles Dustin and Justin Chandler group. Yeah, I would I would love to see Justin Gaethje fight Armin Sarukian, but just like the way that they've kind of structured this division, and just generally the way that a lot of the like the way that a lot of matchmaking is going throughout the divisions in the UFC these days is just making it so that those fights just aren't happening. Yeah, and we really have to eye test those matchups, like uh, against pretty much all of the elite lightweights right now, because the way that the they're kind of working is that we haven't seen uh, any of the like the big prospects right now, or the guys that have just recently become ranked, or or even in the top ten. We haven't seen them against the guys who we have a gauge for how good they are yet. Like, for all we know, Sarukian is going to outclass Dustin and Gaethje, or he might get fucking hossed and have no physical ability to hang with them. But we don't know, because they don't really have any similar opponents 
we don't have anyone to gauge them against in the same way. It's really just the eye test in a way that I don't like. I don't I don't like it just having to be the eye test. Can we both kind of thought that uh, Raphael Fazeev was going to stomp Justin Ga- Justin Gagey. He might have won, but he definitely didn't stomp. <laughs> yeah, and then it just turned out. Oh, he's like smaller than the elite elite lightweights because Dustin and Justin are kind of like markedly larger than Saruki and and, uh, and Gamrot. Also, Gamrot is booked against Fazeev. Yeah, that's a good fight, but again, it's. It's putting the the people that we need to see against the the top five elite guys fighting each other again. It it just doesn't really make sense, especially since the fights that they would be making are like really good. Like those are really fucking good fights to be doing. Uh, I I would be incredibly excited to see Dustin versus uh, Gamrot. Like that, it's a weird matchup, but it's interesting. Yeah, Dustin Poirier has no reason to take those kind of fights at this point. I think he's pretty much like, I'm going to be in big fights or I'm just not going to bother. Which is like, fine, Dustin Poirier has earned the right to do whatever the fuck he wants. Yeah, I, I mean, I, it really is just kind of like Gamrot and Fiziev and, and Surukin that I'm kind of like singling out for this because the way that they're like getting their fights set up, it's it's just... It's just lightweight's so horribly managed that we're not going to see Jalen Turner or Grant Dawson fight anyone very relevant for a while. Probably the soonest we might see a good fight is uh, if Grant Dawson fights like Sarukian. But I think Sarukian's now at this point kind of too well ranked, even though they're only like about two rankings apart on topology. They're far enough apart to where Sarukian could just never fight Grant Dawson, or Grant Dawson could end up fighting fucking Dan Hooker, and then get his ass kicked by Dan Hooker, maybe, and then end up not even getting to fight the the real guys, just getting to fight like a very specific uh, Donald Cerrone matchup. It, it's a hard division to manage if you had like a god uh, ability to just choose what fights happen every single time because you know you could give any of the matchups a kind of goofy spin and then somehow you come out with like Fiziev by sub over Gamrot or some shit it's just the one fight that he's like all oh, guillotine him and he just knocks him out basically then chokes him well anyway let's get into the co-main event then Christian you keep saying to me uh, that this was a magnificent game plan by Jan Bohovic. Uh I have my thoughts on that I've been waiting till we were recording for you to actually elaborate on that. So um, tell me about uh, Alex Pereira versus Jan Blachowicz. Uh, I thought it was just an impressive understanding of how his game fits into certain matchups. He didn't really have the ego of wanting to strike with him at all. Uh, I, I also don't think that ego had anything to do with his approach against Adesanya, where he did a lot of striking with him and barely even attempted the grappling until later in the fight. Uh, I, I think he just knew that Izzy, even though he's objectively like a, a better striker than Jan Blowich, he knows that he has like the size uh, advantage, and he also has enough tricks to kind of bully Adesanya with power if he has a really good game plan. I think he just knew he wasn't going to be able to reliably be um, hanging with prayer on the feet, so he starts the fight by instantly just like punching, clutching into a takedown, which is the correct thing to do. The first round was very smart by him. I think his implementation of it was leaving a lot to be desired because most of the fight was just him or most pretty much the entire first round was just him gassing himself by wrestling Pereira. But then the second round Pereira gets a lot more done, but I do think that everything Jan was doing on the feet was coherent and made sense. It's just hard to keep up against Pereira. 
Yeah, that was the issue with Yan's approach to me is that, um, and I guess there's something to be made about this card being at Salt Lake City, a high altitude. It's it's a meme thing that I never really like to mention as a factor, but you do pretty clearly see it affect certain matchups. Um, and then you know Jan Blahovich being a guy who can wrestle and will do it a bit, but it's not his game. Uh, and he's uh, elevation, and he's uh, kind of always had cardio problems. Yeah, he kind of took away some explosion from Pereira in the first round, but he's a guy who can fucking knock you out when he's tired. When he's completely gassed, yeah. It doesn't really matter. And then the funny that, you know, Jan Blachowicz completely fucking gassed himself within a round and a half, and then just didn't have, like, the speed or uh, drive to finish takedowns anymore. And then, because of that, realized that he actually, you know, it turned out that he kind of could hang with Pereira on the feet all along. He wasn't necessarily winning, but he was still, like, he looked fucked at the end of the second round. And then he was still, like, landing fine on Pereira in the third. He was still getting the Blacker Blitzes off. Um, he was still jabbing. He was he was getting low kicked a bunch because like Pereira's kicks are just hard to read. We talked about this and Jan Blahovich. Probably some combination of uh just Pereira's kicks being hard to read and uh him just like not wanting to let Pereira set shit up with them. He just like got low kicked a bunch, but he was he was like fine and still like kicking shin to shin with the same leg when when it was like swelling up. Um, it was just funny that it like kind of totally turned out that he could just kickbox with Pereira all along, but had made himself tired uh, wrestling the kickboxer, and just even though he was landing, um, the optics were just so fucking bad for him in the last like round and a half because he was just like just backing up and just looked absolutely fucked. Yeah, I, I think it's up to interpretation because to me, the reason that he had success on the feet in the second and third round and could kind of hang with them was that he made them both very tired to start the next round and he's incredibly experienced in MMA so he can kind of just be tired even though he gasses really hard. But like he was having success on the feet in the second and third round despite kind of losing. I think he would have just gotten attrition and eventually beaten because like the durability difference is pretty substantial. Jan Blowich is very durable, but when it comes to, you know, like body and leg kick damage, you're not going to attrite Pereira enough over three rounds as an MMA fighter, unless you're like Adesanya at his absolute best performance possible. Like Jan's not going to, be winning a leg kick battle with Pereira. He's he's not going to out damage him with jabs to kind of take a small damage lead. I think really just making sure that you start the fight with a free round because you do a very nice one, two into a takedown and then just get a free round where now you're both tired going into the second and third, but just kind of hope that you can like even the playing field a bit by making your, you both exhausted and then, kind of having the threat of the takedown be inherent as well as knowing that prayer has to fight from behind now. So he might get a little bit over aggressive. I think conceptually it is a much better game plan in a vacuum than it is for Jan Blachowicz specifically. I think that, but I think that the plan he had is kind of what, uh, you would 
think is the best thing to do if you have Yonblow's skill set. It's just he doesn't have the... I, I just think, like, the dice roll didn't really work. Like, I think he could have won that fight a good, like, 40% of the time, maybe. I think just this time it, it didn't work out. But I thought it's it's a pretty fucking hard matchup to even pick for him because we were, before the fight, like, oh, here's all the things he can do, but, like, he probably just gets knocked out, right? Well, he didn't get knocked out, and he's thinking he got robbed. Like, he's, he's saying on Twitter he got he got robbed, so... Uh, to him, it worked. You know, I, I think that the actual approach wasn't the issue. It was more so he's just not the guy that can pull off that exact uh, game plan to get a winning performance. I think he just did the best he possibly could. Like, I, I don't think he was going to do anything different to even win the striking, or I don't think he, he could have done that much different within his skill set to just sub him. He he showed some things like he he actually got the choke kind of close towards the beginning of the first round, but he wasn't able to get. There was a reason he wasn't getting takedowns in the second and thirds because Pereira, uh, when he gets tired, he doesn't lose as much strength as Jan does. He just loses a bit of speed and some of his ability to just urgently go up and blast you. Pereira is a bit more of a a patient fighter whenever he's tired. It seems. He'll he'll still go up and, and kind of brawl with you a bit, but he's more cautious. And it seemed like getting knocked out in his last fight also took a bit of steam out of him because he wasn't trying to go up and just kill Jan, like I would assume prior to the second Adesanya fight he would have. Because he didn't fight as aggressively nearly at all against uh, Jan as he did against Adesanya in their second MMA fight. And I think that's a product of, one, getting knocked out last time he got too aggressive, and two, knowing that Jan is really large and could take him down at any moment. So I feel like Jan approached the fight knowing what was coming back at him appropriately, even though it didn't work out. And also at like 39 or something, it's just crazy impressive that he's he's able to try out new game plans. So uh, I think Jamal Hill is out as champion with, in- with an injury because the this... This whole division and the, the lineage of this title in the last few years is just a fucking mess. Uh, of course, uh, the obvious play would have to be uh, Pereira versus Jiri Prochowska. If Jiri's ready to fight, I don't know what's going on with that. I, I think that's what people are aiming at is Pereira versus Prochowska, which is sick. I'm excited for that fight. That's like one of the coolest fights ever. Yeah, it really would be. Um, if that doesn't... if if uh, they've got to make a title fight and Jiri's still out, then I guess it should be Pereira versus either like Nikita Krilov or like I think Magomed Ankalaev is fighting Johnny Walker. So I guess the winner of that fight, this division's fucking goofy, dude. Yeah, it is also bad for Pereira because he got taken down by one of the like worst guys at doing that approach in the division. I think Walker's bad enough on the feet to where he could just end up getting himself knocked out before he can get a takedown. But I do actually think if he takes down Pereira, then the fight's kind of free. Uh, same with like Ankalaev and Krilov. I think really, if they just get Pereira on the ground, Pereira is not going to have the same size he did against uh, like 185ers to just not get choked. Unless he just develops really quickly and becomes really, really, really hard to choke in his next couple fights. I just see him getting like subbed by someone unless he fights Jiri and then Jiri just gets knocked out. 
So if you're trying to manage Pereira's career appropriately to get him to the belt, just have him fight Jiri, and he has a good chance of winning. And if he gets subbed, it's no larger of a chance of getting subbed than he has against Ankalaev or against uh, like Hill or Walker or Krilov, really anyone that, that can just take someone down and do an RNC. Oh, and, and then in the tertiary main event, we had Derek Lewis versus Marcos Ruggiero de Lima. And Derek Lewis had the best game plan of the card by a lot. Uh, he is massive, and he's fighting someone that hits really fucking hard, and it's kind of a bad matchup for him if he doesn't do exactly what he did. But he did it. He ran up and just flying kneed him in the first four seconds, and then just punched him until the fight ended. It was basically a Jorge Masvidal four-second flying knee KO. It just made him do ground and pound for another 30 seconds, and the fight was over. Yeah, because it doesn't matter how good your opponent's chin is, if they eat a flying knee from a 260-pound man that rehydrates up to like 290, then they're going to go down. I, I don't think there's really anyone on Earth that could take a Derek Lewis flying knee. So he got buzzed really badly, and then Derek Lewis just had to keep hitting him. And then he promoted the fuck out of himself, so he's probably getting a title shot next fight or something. This was the last fight on his contract, so I, d- I think there's a not indistinct possibility that we just see him fight like Francis Ngannou for $2 million in PFL. You see, my thought is that what they're going to do is they're going to bait him into re-signing the UFC by giving him a title contending shot or just an actual title fight. So either, either they'll give him like Tai Tuivasa or something as a title eliminator now that Gon's out of the picture for a, a short period of time. Or they, they just give him a fucking title shot right after John versus Stipe. Because if John wins, then John just, he can be like, oh yeah, I'll fucking easily beat Derek Lewis real quick. But if you give, uh, if Stipe wins, then Stipe versus Derek Lewis is basically the same thing, except uh, Derek Lewis maybe gets to look okay when he gets finished. Like, he'll just look like he's tough, he'll get punched a bunch and be like, oh, I'm, t- I'm here, and then he'll just get knocked out. And pretty much, I think it all ends up in Derek Lewis getting a title shot and then being knocked out. I think that all roads lead to that right now. I think it would be much more beneficial for Derek Lewis if he is going to stay in the UFC to just uh, keep taking like this level of opponent just in the middle of like pay per view main cards and just keep keep just getting that knockout record up and just like blasting people who are way below his level physically. Well, but the issue is Marcos Jerry De Lima like literally wins that fight nearly eighty percent of the time if he just doesn't get hit by that specific flying knee. Like th- this is a hard fight for him on paper. Yeah, but that's the, but it, that's still just like one of the actual hard fights uh, around that level of the division on paper for Derek Lewis. Um, you know, he could just be fighting. Oh, they're going to give him Aspinall so, no, if he resigns. I mean, he should be fighting these fucking Andre Arlovsky guys. He should be fighting like Jake Collier. Well, my thought is just that a lot. Of- my thought is just a lot of them can beat him spontaneously. Not like Jake Collier or, um, or you know, like any, Parker any people Porter, suck, you, know? you know. Yeah, like Parker Porter isn't going to be uh, beating Derek Lewis. But if you give him any of the actual, like, remotely okay prospects around the weight, there's a good chance they just actually land a body kick, you know? Mm. There's not that many people towards the top end of heavyweight that are the type of fighter that are like Marcus Ruggiero de Lima, where you can just get lucky and not even really lucky just you know kind of win spontaneously because he's 38 and also has always been beatable um 
So Stephen Thompson uh, versus Michelle Pereira got bumped from the card because Michelle Pereira blew weight and Stephen Thompson refused to take the fight, which uh, and now honestly, uh, like, Thompson's saying that he's never going to fight him. Uh, well, fair enough. Uh, Stephen yeah. Thompson, solid professional, uh, shouldn't have to deal with this shit, particularly when he's in the position where he's given guys opportunities to make a name off of beating him. So it's like, do your fucking job, dude. This is like, this guy's missed weight before, probably shouldn't even be yeah. a, be getting another fight booked at welterweight, to be honest. Uh, yeah, I, I just want to uh, like defend Wonderboy from the people that are calling him a little bitch for this. That is the stupidest shit I've ever fucking heard. He's calling out Jack Della Maddalena and Ian Gary, which are just harder fights than Michelle Pereira. Oh. By quite a significant margin. Stephen Thompson is not... He's objectively harder fight. He is not a little bitch. He is a professional, and he shouldn't yeah, have to has, deal with it. he has it. principles. You know, he fucking... He has karate honor. He, 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 took, he took a fight against Darren Till, who, once again, Wonderboy was the established name given a chance to a prospect at that point. Darren Till blew away. He stayed in the fight because it was a main event. He'd fucking gone all the way to England. But... I, I have utmost respect for Stephen Thompson for making this decision. He has no reason to have to fight this guy who's not just going to actually uh, adhere to like the terms of the contract that they signed for this fight. It's just a shame because I wanted to see Stephen Thompson fight. Yeah, uh, hopefully they get Thompson versus Madalena as like a short notice fight on a card coming up. But then back to the card, uh, Bobby Green fought Tony Ferguson, and I want to give this fight as little time as possible because it was not very enjoyable and it should not have been booked Tony Ferguson should not be commissioned to fight yeah uh, far be it from me to tell someone when they need to hang it up but there should be a responsibility on the part of the people who are putting these kind of things together Tony Ferguson he is in deep Chuck Liddell territory where he is just he is so past it and just can't accept it um it's just, it's absolutely miserable. I just I don't want to see it anymore. Yeah, and Tony Ferguson has some of the most well documented mental health issues out of anyone within the UFC currently, because normally they kind of cut the people that are as mentally ill as as him and Diego Sanchez are. Like Diego Sanchez, I think was just always kind of like a, a goofy guy. Oh, so was but Tony then, Ferguson. He, yeah, but Tony Ferguson's always been a violent. Like he, he is violent and has like a severe mental illness. He is not, he, he needs help. You know, he, he shouldn't be fighting right now. And then giving him a fight against Bobby green, who just to kind of give Bobby green a layup that he did not take, by the way, I thought his approach was awful. I thought Bobby green looked horrid. He, he looked slower than usual. His, uh, his boxing offense was very rote. It seemed like he was trying to put on a cultured outboxing performance against someone that he needed to just go up and blast. He showed a, a severe deficiency in his game, uh, like offensively, and I thought it was a bit of an indictment on Bobby Green. I think this is what it looks like when Bobby Green's trying to just go up and blast someone. I think he was trying to put on a cultured outboxing performance when he accidentally knocked out Alaya Quinta because that's how he actually fights and lands good shots on people. Well, yeah, I think uh, I, I definitely agree with you in part. I think he was just trying to flash KO. Tony with like a nice looking straight, but that's a horrible fucking game plan. And you should have just gone up and chin checked them, uh, like stay in range and just kind of one, two. I'm not going to say, Oh, start ripping left hooks. Cause he has a, he does not have good hooks. 
but he could, he could just go up and one to him over and over, keep Tony on the back foot. But instead, he insisted on fighting the same game that he always fights, and it made the fight way closer than it should have been, and he got dropped. Uh, and then he kind of, I mean, he was going to win a decision, but he bailed himself out of having a split decision victory over uh, Tony, because one of the judges totally would have given it to Tony. But he, And then he, he got the arm triangle in the last 10 seconds. It was just a, a really limp performance by Bobby, and I thought it was embarrassing. Uh, it, it really annoyed me, because the fight shouldn't have happened. Did he actually that- get dropped by Tony? I've I've only seen little bits of the fight. I've tried to stay away as much as possible. Yeah, he, he got uh, like dinged by just a right hand while he was on one leg. Bobby Green is hittable, uh, like even though he has good defense. It seems like that would be counterintuitive, but he is he tries to be a bit of a defensive perfectionist, but it makes it to where if you do land on him, you're going to land on him pretty fucking clean. Yeah, he has an extremely flashy style of defense that looks ill as hell when it works, but is constantly walking a tightrope. Yeah, I'll, I'll say it was the best Tony's looked probably since the Charles fight, but he still didn't look good. Uh, he, he looked really slow. His He can't see straight punches coming anymore. His defense was just what it always is, It was, but more rote. And just the fact that he lost the fight because he was getting taken down and probably actually could have just defended the takedown but tried to do a Granby roll and literally just like did not have the explosivity to actually finish the roll and just got put on his back and then choked out and just looked fucking, just looked absolutely miserable. Yeah. uh, Seeing a, a shell of a once great fighter who is in the BJ Penn zone of just like being completely incapable of winning fights. Yeah. I thought it was most embarrassing for the UFC more so than it was for either fighter. I mean, by, absolutely it, not embarrassing at all by Tony Ferguson. He is mentally ill and should not be fighting. Uh, it, it is an embarrassment of his, that his coaches are actually willing to continue giving him fights. It's the people in Tony Ferguson's life and the, the people, you know, the athletic commissions and the fight promotion that are looking at this and seriously saying that it's okay to keep putting a guy in this position in a sanctioned combat sports competition. It's just, it's I just want to forget this shit ever happened. Yeah, one last thing. I, I'm very sympathetic actually to the position that uh, Ferguson's friends and family and even coaches are in because there's only so much you can do to stop making someone fight or like stop doing something they want to do, especially um, like the way Tony's is at this point. Like if his wife tells him to stop fighting, then he might just like stop talking to her forever. Cause that's how a lot of people in his position will react. Diego Sanchez completely isolated himself from anyone that could help him whenever he got that new grifter guy. And that's kind of what could happen to Tony as well. Like if his coaches stop, at least the least they're probably thinking is, I mean, like I'm financially kind of reliant on this guy. And also at least I can do as his friend is try and get him as well prepared as he possibly can be. Cause if I'm not training him, someone else is still going to train him. If Tony Ferguson goes to another gym, they would let him train. So I'm sympathetic to their position, but I'm not sympathetic at all to the commission's position because if you're a friend or family or coach of Tony Ferguson, you cannot stop him from fighting. If he doesn't want to, the commission can, the commission needs to stop him from fighting. Uh, it, it, he's going to get knocked out horribly and it could, like, I, I sound like I'm being a little like dramatic about it, but this is the type of shit that leads to deaths. Like, there's a reason that the commissions exist in the first place, because people have died throughout combat sports history. 
and people, not just random like amateurs getting knocked out in kickboxing regionals. It's professional fighters of upper levels can be f- fucking killed doing this shit. You, you know, you can't clown on Tony Ferguson for still thinking that he's capable of competing because whatever it is about Tony Ferguson that made him believe that he could win all those fights where he was getting his ass whooped in the first round is what makes him believe that he is still a competitively viable MMA fighter. It's just that the body cannot keep up anymore. Yeah, and if you watch his... I'm sure like his sparring, he's still doing well because you know you put... Tony Ferguson or Diego Sanchez or really anyone that's that's like old and shot in a sparring match against some random kid that's like five and two, he's gonna look world class because he's always gonna be able to fight. It's just how viable he is at a top level in fighting. So it, it's just a, a negative feedback loop where, or a positive feedback loop, I guess, where he keeps doing well in sparring. I'm assuming because I can't imagine anyone that's like. Even of like a decent level in sparring, not just getting kind of told by Tony, being goofy and having tons of experience. In the same way that Diego Sanchez was still running through prospects uh, when he was grappling with them, I'm sure. So like, I don't blame Tony for this at all. He's he's not well, and he's has kind of like a vindictive uh, hatred of the UFC at this point for not giving him the title shot when he deserved one. So he's just he can't stop himself. He's just pot committed and just has to keep trying to fight. He, he he got really like fucked over by the UFC. He deserved a title shot. He honestly could have been champion at a certain point. There there was a good three years where he had a real opportunity to be the champion. They just didn't give him a title shot. So he he's been spited really heavily. It's like one of the most depressing shit in the UFC history. Basically, the only reason that he wasn't champion was all just like weird promotional stuff. Not even just the fact that he didn't get a title shot. The fact that. Conor McGregor had been sitting out and clearly had no intention of defending that belt for a ridiculous amount of time when Tony Ferguson won the interim title from Kevin Lee and then you know he and then he was stripped of that title when they suddenly decided that they you know when they finally decided that they actually had to make a new title fight and it ended up being Khabib versus uh Alia Quinta you know Tony Ferguson was just as legitimately like the lightweight champion off of beating Kevin Lee as Khabib was off of beating fucking Aloy Quinta. It's, you know, it's... Anyway, I don't want to talk about this shit anymore. Yeah, fuck it. Uh, Sick fight with Kevin Holland and Michael Chiesa. Fight that was actually ill as hell and made us look smart because apparently we just have a soul read on Kevin Holland. Uh, I think just because we love silly shit. We understand it, you know? It's not all just goofy shit. He he has a method to it. You just gotta kind of figure out what the method is through trial and error. Yeah, people think that you don't have a process if you don't fight like fucking Frankie Edgar or some shit. But like you know, you can have a process and fight like a fucking madman. And well, I gave Michael Chiesa a chance of just beating Kevin Holland the way that many uh, physical wrestler grapplers have in the past. We did kind of just mention all the things that were going to happen in that uh, Kevin Holland was totally just going to be able to ding Michael Chiesa with leaping right straight. He was probably going to hoss him in the clinch, hit him in the body, hit him with knees in the clinch, and probably finish him with, finish him with a dash choke. And 
I think Kevin Holland might have even hit Michael Chiesa with the back elbow while Chiesa was in on a leg that, that we threw out there. So, yeah, Kevin Holland is good. Yeah, he's um, talking about going to 185 because he wants to make weight by fucking and eating. Like, I don't know. I don't remember what he said he was going to eat, but. He said, I like to eat steak and make weight by fucking. Which is honestly fair enough. Like, I don't think it's the correct play. I think he should just stay at the weight that he's now having uh, success at and has a streak at and stop killing his own success. But who am I to say? Yeah, why would he have a fight like that? He just like big someone and just kills him so easily and be like, I want to go back up and be a weird noodle man who gets thrown around. <laughs> yeah, we, I mean, I would say we try to avoid it, but like generally we, we like intend to avoid the talking about like the bullshit that isn't really analysis. But Kevin Hall's a fighter where if you're not listening to his interviews or just random shit he says, you don't know him nearly as well as a fighter. Because uh, the, the way Kevin Holland talks about himself as a fighter, it it kind of makes me understand how to predict his fights better, and it, it's helped a lot. It's not just a like it's not just like a meme aspect of it. It's he. I think that he wants to be a really fucking good fighter, like really hard to beat. I think he wants to be elite and even champion, but I think that he also is. He's just unwilling to admit it because he knows that he he has like he has enough self awareness to know that he has a lot of foils and that he has also not handled his part of his career and that he doesn't really have like the dedication necessary to maintain it because he can have like a good three or four fights where he's in really good shape he's like perfectly uh like ready to game plan and then it seems like he just kind of mentally fatigues from it and then is like I just want to fucking smoke weed and fuck bro which is fair. I'm not going to disparage him for just having a personality that, that kind of informs his fighting style, but it, it does kind of make me think that he's just always going to uh, fight against his own success. Like anytime he starts doing really well, he's going to be like, Oh shit. People are like taking me seriously. I can't be taken seriously. Like I, I need people to think I'm the goofball guy. He has always clearly had the thing where he's afraid to try hard because he thinks he'll look like a little bitch if he fails. Yeah, which is understandable. Like, a lot of fighters, I think, have that, even though it doesn't necessarily show up in their performances as much as it does with Kevin Holland, or it doesn't show up in interviews as much. But in a way, he seems like a fighter that I, like, resonate with Kevin Holland, kind of, in, in that regard, where it's, like, I, I fully understand and empathize with that thought process. I just don't think that it is appropriate for his actual skill potential. I think he should just, honestly, Kevin Hall should just believe in himself. And I think he, he could be uh, like a top five fighter really easily. And that's respectable. Uh, he can also just be a joker while trying to be really good. I think he's just afraid that people won't find him funny if he loses anymore. I, I think he's like, yeah, I could totally be champion if I wanted to. Yeah. It also could be an issue where he just has too much confidence and, uh, and thinks that, he just believes so hard that he could be champion if he really dedicated himself. He's like, I'm not going to, I don't have anything to prove to anyone. It, it could be a bit of both. Maybe consciously he's thinking one, subconsciously he's thinking the other, but I, I don't, I don't know. It, it, he's a, he's a pretty easy to understand fighter because he wears his heart on his sleeve in his interviews, even whenever he's trying to be kind of uh, like sneaky. Like, whenever he's trying to, like, kind of hide his hand of it and, like, not say much about what he's thinking for his next fight, he always kind of lets it slip because he likes talking. And he he's just not good at hiding anything. He wears his emotions very, like, very bare in every fight. I mean, you can even see in, like, the Stephen Thompson fight, him saying, like, 
Hey, uh, hey let's, go, let's go a bit lighter this round, because it seems like he's joking in that he doesn't actually want that, but no, he fucking wanted Steven Thompson to slow it down a little bit. Whoa, this old boy's fast! Yeah, yeah, in, in the fighter that takes himself incredibly seriously like Steven Thompson does, uh, or he doesn't like take himself seriously, but he's like, I, I want to be champion. I, I really want to take his fight seriously, though. Yeah, he fights seriously every single time. He's, and I think that Kevin Holland has a bit to learn from Stephen Thompson in that regard, where you can still have your personality and be like a jovial, fun guy while really being competitive and making sure that you win no matter what. Oh, and Kessa's probably shot. And also, just this is a bad matchup for him. Uh, did Kessa retire after this? I think maybe, but also he's a fighter that I, I just, I don't know, I, I walked out of the room after he fought, if I'm being honest. Yeah. I was like, oh, cool, nice, Kevin Holland won, I'm going to take a piss. I, I'm not, like, super invested in Michael Kessler's career, he, he's an alright guy, I'm sure, it's just, uh, he, he's not a super engaging fighter for me to watch, so it, it's hard for me to be too interested, but, you know, good on him, he had a long career, even if he hasn't, even if he did Respectable retire, career. I think even if he does retire, I don't think he's actually going to retire, I'm sure he's going to fight, like, two or three more times, but... That's just yeah, like, no, he's been talking yeah, about it, and he's uh, settling into the desk job at the UFC. I, 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 yeah. I, th- I don't think he's going to fight that many more times. Also, I don't know where he is on his contract, but he's on three losses. He's probably not even going to re-sign to the UFC if he does fight again. Uh, and he has just a... He's, he's had a lot of weird like patches of inactivity, because he has a really long career, like timing-wise, but he doesn't have that many fights. Like, for how relevant he is, you'd think he would have fought way more. And it seems like he fights at a decent clip when I'm looking at his topology page. It just doesn't feel like he fights very frequently. Even though he's fighting, like, every five months or so. He, but he only has a 16-7 and seven record. Like, he doesn't... Ha- he has, like, a, a half of the fights Kevin Holland's had in the last, like, five years within his last seven years. I mean, Kevin Holland's ridiculously yeah, active. Yeah, ridiculously active, but there's a lot of fighters that are are like similarly as active or fight every like four, three or four months. It just seems weird to me that someone that's as much of a veteran as Michael Chiesa doesn't even have like 30 fights. Uh, he, he like really easily beat Trevin Giles. Well, that was what we wanted to see. Uh, he made it look as easy as you would hope if Gabriel Bonfim is going to like live up to the potential that he appears to have. He just like, when he just walked up and just like ding Trevin Giles with a right hand and then just like hossed him down into side control and just let Trevin Giles stand up so he could jump on a guillotine was slick as hell. Yeah, his mechanics, uh, his mechanics for striking, not great, but um, like it, it's not due to his lack of athleticism. He's certainly athletic as shit, so it, he's young enough to where he could definitely become something, even though that wasn't a particularly encouraging performance on the, on the feet. But who really gives a shit what you look like on the feet whenever you sub your opponent in a minute? So, and he he still landed on Trevin Giles, just didn't yeah. look nice. Yeah, it just looked it looked goofy as hell. Jake uh, Matthews, RNC, Darius Flowers, and Roman Kapalov knocked out Claudio Ribeiro. There's not a ton to f- talk about for those fights, just because they were uh, the, the Kapalov Hibero fight was, was was pretty cool. I mean, it was like I agree. I mean, Hibero kind of shit shit the bed, but he was you know, he was getting tooled up a little bit. In the beginning of the first, and then he like dinged Kapilov with a right hand, like chased him along the cage and kind of fucked him up, but couldn't seal the deal. Uh, and then started the second round, kind of just like backing up and uh, you know not pressing the issue when he had just had Kapilov basically out on his feet, and Kapilov just uh, 
just dinged him with a real nice uh, left high kick, knocked him the fuck out. It was cool. Uh, I think I wasn't entirely sold on Kopilov when he came into the UFC. I hadn't really seen any of his uh, stuff from M1, and I thought he was just like, he, he looked just like a kind of neat striker who didn't really have the physicality to hang in the UFC, he was kind of just getting hossed around and didn't seem to be hurting people with his strikes, even though he, he was clearly sharp on the feet and had some neat tools. But he's on a nice little uh, streak of uh, three knockouts against uh, Lesio Di Chirico, Puna Hale, Sariano, and now Claudio Hibero. Claudio Hibero, probably the like least notable win out of the three. Roman Kapilov's cool. Expect him to be a thing at middleweight for a while. Well, I like the fights a lot. Um, Jake Matthews just, I mean, Darius Flowers just put on like his career best performance. It was very gritty and he really tried, but he was just, it, it was a guy that was, it, it was the same thing that happened to Jack Dale Madalena a little while ago. You know, just a guy that on short notice that's uh, comparable. Like he's a UFC level fighter, you know, he like, he should be in the UFC. He just isn't great and also, uh, like, like he's not going to just burst into the UFC and kill everyone. He's just like good enough to hang around in the UFC. And then he was fighting on short notice, but it was a very spirited performance. And then he gets RNC once he gasses really hard because he didn't have a training camp. Yeah. We've kind of seen this happen a bunch of times recently, like, like Gabriel Santos versus Lerone Murphy and Diego Lopez versus, uh, Movsarev Luev. This guy comes in on short notice against the, good prospect and he's supposed to just get murked and then he does okay and then still loses. <laughs> yeah. Um, Eros Medic versus or er, Medic versus Matthew Salzberger was fucking awesome. Sick fight. Awesome fight. People were sleeping on on Eros, but I've been saying for like a, a while now, Eros is fun. Like he's, he's a yeah. nice striker to watch and he's he seemed a lot less small in this fight than people were expecting him to be. I know you were expecting him to be smaller, and then I, I I talked to other people that were expecting him to be very small. I didn't remember him being like a huge lightweight or anything. He's very tall. And I kind of he... like grew up into the weight really hard last couple of years. He didn't look small at all. Uh, fighting Matthew Samuelsberger, who is a pretty fucking huge welterweight, and uh, he got he got dinged in the first round because Samuelsberger like hits hard and he'll throw down with you, but he just kind of figured Samuelsberger out because. Semi's kind of just kind of kind of like wrote and runs out of idea, runs out of ideas, and Uros is just like it's a pretty sharp kickbox. It was, a, it was a nice ass finishing sequence. Semmelsberger definitely not an easy guy to knock out. I'm excited for Uros Medic moving forward. Uh, I think I'd like to see him fight like someone like Munir Lazez before he gets like, like a ranked fight or anything. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at his. Uh... At his fights, he he only has one KO loss other than this back uh, in his like fourth fight, which will happen to you, you know. Oh, and he got knocked out by William Knight in his amateur, but that doesn't really count. He did, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, but he's like he has a ridiculous chin, but Uros he's he's crisp. Like he'll he'll if you let a good kickboxer hit you as much as Semmelsberger is always going to let it people hit him, then it doesn't matter how durable you are. You're going to get knocked out eventually, especially if you get hit by some slick shit. Like, the spinning back fist he got uh, Selmsberger with was just, like, mechanically it wasn't anything to marvel at, but it was real fucking clean timing, and the positioning was really nice on it. Uh, yeah, like, it the application cool was lovely. Yeah. Uh, and 
Yeah, you know, Semmelsberger, he he went to war with Chaos Williams and took his power, but Chaos Williams is anything but slick. Yeah, uh, he's also like Jake Matthews. Jake Matthews is is kind of slicker, but he just doesn't have the the like temperament to to really ding him and then go up and kill him. He's also just a worse kickboxer than Eros. Like Eros is he's a really good kickboxer. Like he, he's gonna. I think he's very fast for welterweight as well. Yep, as really clean mechanics. Uh, he's basically just new Tim Means, but without the guillotine. Uh, and then, the, just to finish out the card, um, Miranda Maverick subbed Priscilla Cachoeira in the third round because Priscilla had no business being in there against Miranda Maverick, apparently. I know that we gave Cachoeira some chances to win, but the fight turned out how they were expecting, or they were hoping for it to turn out, where Miranda Maverick just kind of get put back on track and get an easy win. Well, good for her. This was a pretty much a must-win fight, and she made it look as easy as it was supposed to be, even though it could have been a lot harder than people were giving it credit for. Then on to a surprisingly good card. Uh, Corey Sandhagen fighting Rob Font. And, uh was originally supposed to be Corey Sandhagen fighting Umar Namagamadov. Uh People have been thinking that Rob Font is maybe past his prime in terms of being a the top contending elite bantamweight, but he's coming off of a very solid performance, uh, KO win over Adrian Yanez, a fight that on paper could have been really hard for him. So, and this is a fight that I, I wanted to see for both guys for a while. Uh, I think it should be a banger. Well, do you, do you want to lead on this one, Christian? Yeah, it, to me, the matchup is probably going to be decided on the the clinching exchanges because they are really good uh, punchers. Uh, it's a bit more of like a power and volume versus uh, like countering timing and precision matchup. I mean, Corey's crazy quick, uh, and and he doesn't hit light. But Font's more of a guy to try and press the volume edge, uh, at least at this point in his career than Sandhagen is. I think Sandhagen's trying to fit more into the role of a like a composed outfighter in matchups where he's allowed to, and and just kind of build his offense in in a way that's a lot more measured than in his previous UFC fights. And I think Font knows what he is and has known what he is for a long time, whereas Corey's still building his style, sort of. Well, my guess for the way the the clinching is going to shake out is that Font's going to get his punches stuffed by Sanhagen having nice knee timing and then uh, takedowns off of it. I think it's actually a real possibility we just see Corey Sanhagen try and grapple the entire time, especially it being short notice and him not having as much time to like work out a game plan on the feet as he probably was trying to set up for Umar that he's that he was training an entire training camp to fight or Umar Nurmagomedov. So he's probably just been grappling whole camp. So, uh, my, my guess is that he's probably going to press a grappling advantage pretty early on. I mean, that will be a part of pretty much every, uh, approach Corey Sanhagen takes to any fight these days. Yeah. He's going to try to take in. everyone down. I, I, I think the, the biggest evolution I think I've noticed from Corey Sandhagen basically since the uh, Aljamain Sterling and TJ Dillashaw fights is more than any kind of notable stylistic shift. I think it's more that just like he wants to be like 
a professional MMA fighter now, if you know what I mean. Yeah, in the, in the same way we were talking about Dustin earlier, I think it's just more well applied to Corey due to his athletic attributes and his like mental talent. Yeah, and I think part of that for Corey Sandhagen is just being more well-rounded and utilizing every tool that is at his disposal. Whereas, you know, he's always kind of tried everything. I just think he used to be way more of just like a crazy violence guy who wanted to throw down in the pocket, throw 20 flying knees every round, go for like crazy guard subs and shit. Um... Whereas now, yeah, I, I, I think that it, there's much more of just like a back foot volume and like takedowns and top control approach to a lot of the performances that he's having these days. Throwing away takedowns to come up on clinches and land offense from there. Just being like an, an, an MMA fighter. <laughs> yeah, to me, it seems like the way he's actually trying to structure his game is like a. Uh more modern or like a, a future MMA iteration of uh, a Sun Tzu, where he just wants to neutralize all of your offense and basically have a completely like a hundred percent to zero percent success rate in every fight, which is how, uh, you know, most fighters are probably training, but I think he genuinely thinks it's a possibility that he can just uh, evolve a style that has no weaknesses or, or foils in it just on, on like concept, which I'm not saying that's what's going to happen. I just think that is probably where his mindset is at based off of where his recent few fights have gone. I think he, yeah, he's clearly a man who's obsessed with the artistry of fighting. Yeah. And he has like the mental drive. He wants to be the best fighter very clearly. And he's said as much. So it's not surprising that that seems to be what he's kind of like pulling towards. Well, Rob font, I think he more just, is under the impression that what got him to the dance is eventually going to get him to the championship, even at this point. Uh, in worst-case scenario, he just has some good fights and finishes out his career strong. I, I don't think he's anywhere near shot. I think he is going to look really good. I just think it's a kind of poison matchup for Font. If, if Font doesn't get bullied in the boxing, uh, then that's a win. Especially on on like shortish notice, I, I don't know if Font had a fight prepared before this one that he got pulled out of, or if he just took it on like a month notice. He was he was supposed to be fighting Song Yudong. Mm. Okay, so that's uh, you could not have a more different opponent, basically. Uh, yeah, but you know what? Probably, uh, I I think this is a potentially less poisonous uh, stylistic matchup for. Uh, Rob Font than Song Yudong would have been, even though Corey Sanhagen kind of tooled Song Yudong. Yeah, just the way the matchups shake out, I think that uh, Song is really difficult for uh, Font to get the margins against. Whereas I think the margins are just a lot wider against Corey. I think his chances of just getting 50 45 are a lot higher in this one than they would be against Song Yudong. But his chances of just getting knocked out are also dramatically lower. Still there, though. Absolutely still there, but the fact that Font probably actually does have a power edge that he can probably use to maybe kind of bully Sandhagen in exchanges in certain spots, at least early, uh, just think that Rob Font is a lot more... Um, I think just his big problem that has lost him fights at the highest level is mainly just that he's too rote. Um, he, ha- he, he has good ideas and he keeps at them, but he's just such a flowchart fighter where he's like, oh, I'm going to pump the jab out there, I'm going to do the one-two, then I'm going to do the one and the uppercut to the body, 
and then I'm going to do the one in the knee, and then I'm going to put the left hook on the end of it. And it's just like these few ideas that he cycles through, and he applies them all very well. He has he has good timing, and he just puts good numbers out there. And he, like I was talking about Dustin Poirier, he realizes that he's just like he's got big old hands, and he doesn't need to hit you hard for it to be effective. And he just wants to put volume out there and touch you. The flip side of that is kind of that he's not that accurate and he gets figured out by good counterpunches and people who can stay defensively responsible and kind of just like kind of just like mitigate his offense and just like stop like keep him from like landing clean stuff that can actually like like seriously affect you uh, and potentially finish the fight or 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 get big moments of damage off um and then just like start finding like big counter opportunities and Rob Font, I don't think he's shot. It's just the fact that these days he he used to be like pretty fucking hard to hurt. And these days when he gets hurt, his body language just looks bad and he can keep himself in the fight and then come out strong the next round. He just tends to then crumble and lose the rest of the round. Yeah. I, uh, I, I have those there for the fight. That's probably like, it's going to sound goofy as fuck, but bear with me. Uh, I think that can, like the, this fight's similar to the Cheeto versus uh, Font fight, except if Cheeto was a lot more conceptually defensively sound rather than like mechanically or tactically defensively sound. Uh, Cheeto has really good defense, but he was getting hit a lot because he would focus on defending 10 strikes for every one strike he would throw. This fight, I think it's a lot more Corey's just going to have very tight positioning and uh, like use his strikes to kind of limit Font's offense rather than use his defense to limit his offense. Because if you're just being defensive against Font, he's just going to try and work around it. He's not really going to get discouraged from throwing because he's missing. Yeah, the difference is that Cheeto, um, he goes about his offense knowing that uh, nothing's going to happen to him even if he gets hit clean anyway. So, like, even if he's being, as long as he's paying attention, he's able to just kind of, like, get the reads he needs to just, like, fucking send you flying with a single shot. Um, uh, Didn't work against Corey Sandhagen because Corey Sandhagen's immortal and just uh, way more adaptable with his offense and doesn't give up easy counter opportunities. So Cheeto just being pretty serviceable defensively and having an insane chin and having the power to just kind of like nuke Rob Font once around and Jose Aldo just having just flat out really fucking good defense and also just having crazy power and being able to just uh, steal the men- the momentum of an entire round off of Rob Font with a single counter right hand. Um I don't necessarily think Corey Sanhagen has that kind of power, and I don't think he like has the temperament to fight like that anyway. He he himself also, you know, like like I say, he he he's a competitor. He wants to win fights. He's going to put volume out there. He he's going to go with what he thinks the meta of MMA is. Yeah, it seems like the way that he attempts to fight, it, it's no longer going to have bangers like i feel like three or four years ago if this fight was happening people would be like oh that fight's gonna be badass they're gonna fucking brawl well, it certainly would have been a war a scrap yeah but this fight i feel like just the way that sanhagen sets up his fights now the most exciting one of his fights can be 
it, it's not going to be bad. It's going to be still crazy enjoyable. It's just a different flavor of enjoyable. Instead of having like a blood and guts war, it'll be more similar to like the TJ Dillashaw fight where it's a bunch of singular moments that don't lead to like a finish or KO. But it's uh, it, it just like really clean moments. Kind of like the, the way Adesanya versus Gaslam wasn't constantly action-packed. It just had a bunch of sick moments that kind of built to it, and it was more of a performance than anything. I think that's the type of enjoyable fight Sandhagen's going for at this point. I mean, I definitely still enjoyed Sandhagen's fight with Sonky Dog. His fight with Chito Vera, on the other hand, we didn't get to talk about that. I think at the time you called it a uh, Jorge Masvidal versus Lorenz Larkin ass fight, and I knew exactly what you meant and don't feel the need to elaborate on it in the slightest. Yeah, I think this is... Uh... I don't think this fight is is going to play out like that at all because Font is just more likely to take uh, threes than uh, than Cheeto is. Like if if Font has an opportunity to like land a counter jab or attempt a counter jab, he's going to go for it. Whereas Cheeto will sometimes just wait for like a really nice shot. So I think even whenever Corey's having more success offensively. He's still going to be under fire more than he was against Cheeto. I think in a, in a unique way, this is actually a harder fight for him than the Cheeto fight was. But he's less likely to just get murdered. Yeah, uh, like, Fon, he, he's still going to take every exchange, and he's still going to constantly be filling the space between exchanges with his own long-range volume in a way that Cheeto Vera just, you can't rely on him to do anymore. Um, so that, th- there is that. Um, it's just yeah that like Rob Font just has less uh, just like random X factor violence than Cheeto, uh, but may just have actually give himself a lot more opportunities to land good stuff on Corey Sanhagen if he's just like trying to keep up with him. Um, also makes it like more and more likely for him to just get like uh, repeatedly dinged by someone who doesn't hit as hard as him, but is a lot more just like uh, adaptable in the way that they build their offense and build from one exchange to another. So I'm probably actually going to pick Corey Sandhagen by decision just because Rob Font is still pretty hard to finish, even in the fights where he's getting fucked up and Corey Sandhagen is just, uh, uh, you know, like I say, he, he has that professional approach these days. But he, he also really could win by knockout. I tend to agree, and I, I know I'm I'm bringing up the the Cheeto fight a lot, but it's a common opponent, and I think that it it's an important uh, aspect of, of or an important tool to use for analysis for this fight. But one thing I would like to mention in difference that uh, kind of contrasts the fight for uh, Cheeto versus Font is that Font studies tape. I think that. Uh, Mar- Marlon Vera just has a better feel for fighting and then watches fights. I think he'll watch a fight with someone and just get a, a really good intuitive feel of what he should be doing in, in the fight, whereas Font's like training things that he's going to be like, he's like drilling certain sequences, he's he's uh, like doing rounds where he's particularly preparing for one specific thing from his opponent. I think that he uh, works, or I think he fights to his opponent's a lot more carefully than Cheeto does to good and bad effect sometimes. And I think a way that that's going to manifest in this fight is that uh, Corey's like beatable in exchanges. He, he gets hit in a lot of his fights. He has incredibly good defense conceptually, like I said earlier, but the actual application of it is mostly just him having a shitload of, of tricks that he can use 
that he'll throw out like two or three times a fight, or he'll maybe spam one tactic a few times, like against uh, against Jan, he he had the part where he would go shoulder to shoulder and then try and pivot out to the center. It was a, a way to get himself off of the fence and also crowd Jan's offense. But then whenever it stopped working, he just kind of didn't have a way to to navigate it once Jan started pivoting with and encountering. Uh, and he's he's had other things like that happened to him in, in fights like the the way that he dropped tj in their fight it worked once and then it just didn't work again because he, he couldn't really get that thing going again uh it, it in that way he's a very adaptable fighter but he's so much of a feel fighter that i think he's probably just thinking i'm gonna kick this guy in the arms whenever he's trying to box with me and then jab at him and kind of see what happens because I do think in, inherently he is a vibe fighter. He just flows in a certain way that other fighters don't, or, or not many fighters do. He, I, I think he just has an intuitive sense of fighting the same way that Cheeto does. But he studies tape like religiously, it seems like. He, he always comes in with very intelligent tactical reads and also a deep understanding of his opponent's physicality and timing. Even like his, his timing on Jan was beautiful even though Jan you know eventually managed to to work his way back into the fight after the first I say that as if he was losing badly but like he he came back and made the fight pretty dominant by the end uh and I I don't know if there's necessarily a point to that I think it's more just an observation that I I think that the way that uh Font built his game plan is gonna actually pose quite a few problems for Sandhagen Regardless of the result, I think that, honestly, if Font has a lot of success, he's probably going to get knocked out soon. Uh, I'm under the impression that bringing a dogfight out of Corey Sanhagen is not necessarily a good idea. I think just trying to win a, a composed decision against him is a good way to get a, a win out of him, or, or get, get a win against him, because if you really start beating him, he's going to come at you aggressively and, and try and like seal the victory. He he has like an insane competitive edge where he's just always trying to to finish the fight no matter what. Uh, if he's losing, if he's losing, uh, I've been saying he's not like this crazy violence guy anymore. But like the guy who had that Yuri Alcantara fight is still deep within his soul. Yeah, and, and people like to mention him kind of navigating on the back foot against Jan as a a mark against him being hungry for the finish. But he got horribly fucked up in the last two rounds before that, and then he still went for it in the last ten seconds. He's still flying knee in a spin kick. Like he he tries to finish the fight if he's losing. He does not just let himself lose. And that's something that hurts Font if Font starts having success early, is that he just gets Corey to beat him up more. And you're you're very unlikely to see Corey Sanding and just get flash knocked out. And I don't really think that Font has the speed necessarily to actually get that, and I think he's too rote to the point to where Sandhagen will have kind of figured out how to win the fight against him cleanly before the fight even starts. Before they even get the fight. Even though it's a short-notice fight, he's they're still both planning for each other. It's not like it's so short-notice they don't even get time to structure a game plan. Okay, so the rest of the card actually has some like pretty decent fights on. Um... Yeah, this is hard to talk about. <laughs> yeah, and this podcast is long as hell, so I'm happy to just uh, leave it there and uh, we can talk about any of this. Uh, any if any of this stuff is cool, we can, we can talk about it next week. 
Yeah, I agree with that. I think we should just mention that just gone driver versus Tatiana Suarez is a shot off. And he was saying yeah. to Either Suarez gets dusted for being old and slow on the feet, or Andrade gets dusted for being wrestleable and small. I mean, so it's probably Andrade gets dusted for being wrestleable and small. But, I guess. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, oh, and that goes like the second best part of the card. Marcellus and Kelly Phillips are fighting, and that might just be uh, uh, another Honey Marcellus getting uh, like made too defensive by a guy just throwing a bunch of shit. Or it might uh, be Kyler Phillips just being a little bit too jazzy with his strike selection. Yeah, not being as slick as he thinks he is and actually just kind of getting uh, pressured and figured out by a uh, really consistent, uh, aggressive counterpuncher who with like good footwork and pretty good defense. I don't think Kyler Phillips is a southpaw, so I don't know about that. Hany Barcelos, you know, the, the window's probably passed for him to like make a serious run in the division, but I still expect him to be winning some fights. Could be a pretty good matchup. I'm uh, interested to see how that one shakes out. There's, 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 there's good fights up and down the card. Like Billy Quarantillo versus Damon Jackson. There's just a mirror match. It's just guaranteed to be wacky violence from bell to bell. Any of this stuff's cool. We'll talk about it next week. We'll see you guys later. Peace.